Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. As always, we are grateful to have you join us here uh, on this Thursday afternoon. You can reach us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. And you can find our podcast wherever you get your podcast. I mean, just anywhere. Just <laughs> I like across just wide, the podcast I, I universe. I can see your arms, just like, <laughs> just like a loving father. Like, anything the light touches anything. is your kingdom. It is the, all of it. Like Lion King, any <laughs> podcast uh, you find. Uh, so anyway, it's good to be together. And a uh, little, little programming note, word for warning, I'm leaving early today. So when, pe- when people hear the voices change later, I haven't lost my job here in the middle of the show. I mean, that could happen. <laughs> yeah, that is always say. a possibility between now and then. Uh, I'm going to refer to our guests by Brian and see if you will notice. <laughs> uh, PJ, our producer, he he said he was just going to start. Uh, he was just going to come up with uh, audio clips just to put in. So it sounded like I was here just over and over while you're talking. You'd hear Florida. <laughs> <laughs> see, I thought you were going to say something more subtle than that. Like you're just Brian going, mm-hmm, uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, we heard a story of like somebody. What was it? A national guy who is he? Enormous, millions of people audience, and one of our people here told us the story years ago that he'd have authors on, and they'd he'd leave before they ever came on the phone, and he just had his producers get all the audio of him going, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, fascinating! Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. and they would do entire interviews that way. That's that crazy! And then just thank gutsy. them at the end. Gutsy. Hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. We'll be back. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Insert author name. <laughs> it's that's, amazing you can get away with that. I I would love to know if it ever backfired. Do you want to try it once? Yeah, probably in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Probably in about an hour. So, uh, Beto O'Rourke. So he is running. Uh, he is one of the handful of people who uh, is vying to be the Democratic um, nominee for president to run against Donald Trump or Joe Walsh, as we like to say around here. And uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, uh, has a feel. I was watching the Today Show and they were talking about it today. And I will say this politically. He's trying. We have to talk about grabbing your lane like he's trying to define their lane. He's trying to define like kind of the left of left lane right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good to know. Uh, in the front hand. Uh, but man, he made a statement about abortion just the other day that I think becomes important for, I at least feel like it's important to bring up just to get a picture of what some people think about abortion and why it's such an important conversation to talk about. So this is out of the National Review, uh, but it's all over the place. Let me just read it for you. Yeah. Uh, during a town hall campaign event at the Co- College of Charleston, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke reiterated his support for permitting abortion until an unborn child's birthday. 
Uh, you were at a town hall meeting just like this in Cleveland, and someone asked you a specifically about trim- third trimester abortions, and you said that's a decision left up to the mother. A young man told O'Rourke in the first question of the first question out of the box. Yeah, gosh, here's what he's here's the question. I was born September eighth, nineteen eighty nine, and I want to know if you think on September ninth, September seventh, nineteen eighty nine, my life had no value. I want you to, I think it's very important to realize how he phrased his question, right? He said, did my life have value the day before I was born? At first it says the first, the former congressman tried to dodge. Of course, I don't think that. And of course, I'm glad you're here, but that wasn't all that O'Rourke said. He then went on to say, this is a decision that neither you nor I, nor the United States government should be making. That's a decision for the woman to make. We want her to have the best possible access to care and to a medical provider uh, before referring to Roe versus Wade, he added, I don't question the decisions that a woman makes. Only a woman knows what she knows. And I want to trust her with that. That's pretty striking. Like, yeah. not surprising. It fits uh, the the stream, like I just said, that right. he's in. But to have somebody ask, the day before I'm born, does my life have no value? Basically going, can I, have an, can I be aborted the day before? And the first sense that he had to even dodge a little bit. But secondly, what he said, I found... To even see it on video, like I saw it today on the Today Show, it's, yeah, it's really striking. What was I'm curious? What was striking about seeing it in video? Uh, to watch the guy look at the guy who asked. I mean, like watching them look at each other, so, like intensified. So the guy who asked the question, it's a young guy, and a gutsy question, right there. Uh, it's a gutsy question. Two things stood out from watching it. Hmm. One is uh, they were almost as close as you and I are in the studio right now. Hmm. He, the guy who asked the question was maybe five more feet away than I am from you. And right now I'm like three feet from you, four feet. Uh, so it was very close. Yeah. Uh, and so that was striking. He's making eye contact with them, basically going, uh, yeah. yeah. Did I? Right. Yeah. I, basically what I, you know, you don't have value. He mm. didn't ever went so far as to say that. Right. But he said, yeah, you know, it's up to your mom. Secondly, what was telling was after he answered it, he got a pretty big applause for it. He did get a pretty big applause. And right. that was uh, not surprising. Again, I don't want to feign like <gasps> unbelievable. Like, no, this was I would have. Exp- if you told me how did he answer that question, I probably could have written this as to how really? you, weren't, uh, you weren't surprised by that response at all. I was more impressed by the question, like really, because I think we've all wondered. We all want to see people push. Uh, okay, not we all. I want to see these guys and women pushed with some very real questions. Like, yeah. really, like the day before I was born, you would have been good with that? Yeah. As opposed to more abortion theoretically. Uh, so I, he didn't have much of a choice in the answer this way or else he would have been against his thing. But to have it asked, like the day before I was born, did my life have value? And to watch him answer that and then be cheered for it, I found it pretty chilling, even though not surprising. Uh, and I don't, <clears throat> how much do I want to say here? All of it. I. Um, you want to say all of it. They Do I? <laughs> I actually don't think that Beto would say that that person didn't have value. I, th- I think he just, you know, we talked about, uh, and that wasn't even here. I read a, oh, it was here. We read that uh, article from Stephen Carter, and he talks about misordered laws. You know how, mm. like, at the time of Jesus, the statement was, love the Lord your God and pursue holiness. Yeah. And then Rabbi Jesus comes along and add and, you know, orders them differently. And he talks about how we're always inclined to misorder laws. And I think for Beto in his mind, elevating the freedom of the mother to do or act however she wishes up until even the day before is his highest aim. Uh, I think he's wrong. So he might be saying to the guy, 
I'm not going to say you don't have value, but I value more what your mom thinks is best. I think that's well said. I think, and again, he's not here. Yep. Or is he? He's right. No, I'm just no. He's not. He's <laughs> not here. A good guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really would be. Come on down, Beto. Uh, so yeah, I think exactly you're right. I think when it comes to values, I think um, he would place a greater value on not only the mom's freedom, but the structure that would allow her to have that freedom for him. I think that is the greater aim, the greater purpose. Um, I think to be asked that, I mean, I, I honestly don't even know many pro choice people that necessarily would agree with his answer there. Yeah. And, and you would kind of said it too. And this, we're both putting words in his mouth. So this is the only That's way the segment could yep. go. But, um, you had said it, and maybe you didn't really mean this, but you said, uh, well, so I, you know, Beto would be fine with it the day before. I don't think anyone's fine with it. I think in their minds, they need to, to uphold this, this construct, this idea yeah. of total autonomy and legal freedom yeah. is of greater value. And I think that anybody would, I hope, geez, anybody with a conscience or a heart would just be devastated and heartbroken. I, I still, I still think he's wrong. Yeah. Um, but it was. It was an interesting kind of show. And I, too, saw the video, and it was it, it was definitely an intense yeah. kind of exchange, for sure. Um, but I don't I don't know. I wish I wish he was here in the studio. I'd love to ask him I would too. some clarifying questions uh, if, about if, that response. For me, it just, again, and this is you and I sound like a broken record, but I think it's important to say, again, it raises the stakes of the abortion debate <laughs> just yeah. uh, as, as that important. Well, we wanted to put that out there because it's in the news. We'd love to hear more from you at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Coming up next on foxnews.com, an article about a house bought by Barack and Michelle Obama. Is it any of our business? Hmm. Coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. You see, it's you and I dancing, and I looked up, and our producer was doing this great dance, and it threw me. You know, he's got some videos online already of him dancing, so that doesn't surprise me. But it just, I wasn't ready. I was ready for the point. Like, normally, he looks at us and just points, but instead, I was getting a, a head bob. I was getting <laughs> something. It was good. Did you see his dance? Oh, he's dance? going to the microphone Did you see right his now? dance when he became an uncle? Did you see that uh, one? Yes, I did. That was good. It is not safe for work, friends. So, I would not recommend going there now. PJ, thoughts on your dancing right there? Uh, it, it's an attempt. That was I, good. I just, I just call it like rhythmic jerking. Yeah, it's, it's glorified. Not going yeah, you yeah. need a different. <laughs> I'm gonna walk away from that. Yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what kind of the best segue I can give to that is tell you Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, wow. Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you find podcast. Uh, Barack and Michelle Obama. They are. You've heard of them before. Uh, you're, you're musicians? Aware. You're is, that, aware. is that, were they in a TV show? So uh, the Obamas, uh, they are nothing if not lightning rods for people, especially on talk radio. So uh, generally when I say their name, people uh, who are listening to their radio or usually have an opinion. Isn't that wild how certain just names, Obama, Clinton, Bush, all these different Trump, uh, immediately bring something up in people. But here we go. The Obamas. Uh, Barack and Michelle Obama recently bought a $15 million house of hypocrisy. The uh, headline. Uh, so I'm, I'm reading the headline. The headline is editorializing here. Uh, but just reading the headline. That's a good caution. Michelle and Barack Obama's bid to purchase a nearly $15 million property appears to have been accepted. The Martha's Vineyard estate sits close to a beach, 
has two guest wings, seven guest rooms, and measures out to be 6,900 square feet. That's pretty much my house. Yeah, I know. Is he a pastor? <laughs> Has he gone into the ministry? Uh, they've rented the- Is that you? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Is this in Rolling Meadows? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you win. They've rented the property over the summer and now seem ready to make it their own. We might lose our jobs before. Yeah, that might have been it, man. Let's need to bleep some of that out. <laughs> we're not bleeping out what PJ said before. Yeah, we're, we're leaving that in for anyway. sure. If we're going down, he's going down too. Former President Obama and the first uh, lady, former first lady, have reportedly made a bid of approximately fifteen million dollars. Uh, that's been accepted, uh, and then it goes on again, more editorializing here. But unlike President Trump, this article says, who earned his money before taking office, the Obamas have benefited handsomely from their time in the White House. President Obama only earned the standard $400,000 salary while in office. But after leaving, he and his wife acquired a joint book deal worth $65 million, high price speaking engagements, and a deal with Netflix. Uh, as a capitalist, the author writes, I'm all in favor of people making as much money as they want and spending it how they please. However, this lavish new abode is quite a statement in hypocrisy from the former president who spent his presidency demonizing everyone else's success. And then it goes on. Let me uh, let me ask it two ways here. All right. Uh, Does it bother you at all that the Obamas have left the White House and are now making all of this money and are buying this huge house in Martha's Vineyard? Uh, Any problem with it? Uh, No, not really. To be honest, I. We kind of joked about it a little bit earlier. I have a much bigger problem when it's clergy, when it's management for almost an endless list of reasons. Hopefully we've tackled some of them on the show and it's obvious. Maybe yeah. it's not. Yeah. That's a completely different thing in my mind. Um, I will say whether it's Republican or Democrat, I have always had like a teensy bit. There's a there's a punk rock part of my heart <laughs> that looks at any of that and says, Okay, that's a little much, isn't yeah, it? You know, yeah. but a lot of that's context, and I could explain that away both ways. And this is where you and I can get kind of circular because I'm like, oh, I could make a case for or yeah. against, and I can do all of that. I st- I do have to recognize, I do want to be transparent even now that like I always do have like a little bit like ah, eh, but like we've mentioned before on this show, you know, I I have friends who uh, have the kind of money that I didn't know was possible and are incredibly generous with yes. it. And I've seen them start movements and help churches and build hospitals. So yeah. like I've seen the best of the best of what wealth can do. Uh, but I've also seen, <laughs> I've also seen some shady stuff too. So that's both in my brain. Yep. And uh, I, I think the headline does sort of show the yeah. angle of the particular article. The angle though, isn't just that they did it. Correct. They're, they're kind of trying to make the case in general that, Democrats shouldn't have nice houses because of what they generally posture towards with their policies. And I would love to know the first question, what you asked me, does this bother you? And secondly, though, is there a case to be made, particularly for wealthy Democrats who by and large tend to more rail against extravagant wealth? So I would be I would say this. I would say just like when we as pastors feel this, uh, be careful what you're you know. You got to kind of live up to your word. Sometimes he said in a speech in 2018, uh, there's only so much you can eat. There's only so big a house you can have. There's only so many nice trips you can take. I mean, it's enough. Uh, You know, I'm the type when I read this, I was like, buy any house you want. Really? Just whatever. Like it's your money. I would, you know, I would hope that, you know, out of that money too, you're being generous and you're doing stuff. And I, like you, have a much bigger problem when pastors are profiting. Absolutely. uh, In that. I do start to see the hypocrisy angle here a little bit. Hmm. Like, uh, uh, I, you might have been out away when we did the story. Maybe you weren't about 
the climate change summit in Paris where all the celebrities and Obama, too, and all these people were going and they all took their private jets. Yeah, I wrote that story. That was me. (laughs) And the the hypocrisy. I do think there's something to be said uh, about um, your actions not matching your words, calling your words into question, whether you're a pastor or a politician. Obviously, the the you and I are talking in circles because the <laughs> the um, the flip side of this is okay. Can you buy a million dollar house? Does he have to buy a five hundred thousand dollar house? Right, right, right. Does he have to? Because it again at the at the a good you know if you're out there and you don't like Obama and you're a capitalist and this and that when you should feel good anyway for him. He made his money in the private sector. He wrote a book. Yeah, he's got speaking deals. People are paying him what they think he's worth. Hmm. He's making money. So I've got I do not begrudge this guy for making money at all. Hmm. Um, The question is, if you've stood on something that says, you know, exorbitant wealth is bad is one of the bad things about our country. And then you do this. I do think you've got to answer some hard questions. I don't know what the answer to those hard questions are, but I, I do think they're worth asking. I would really love to hear him answer it, quite frankly. I'd love for someone to read him this line yeah, from right. the speech and just go help us, not not in a way of like, I caught you, but just like uh, help us understand this. Or Bernie Sanders has, you know, Bernie Sanders is Mr. Wealth, like uh, we should spread it out. And he's got multiple homes. Like how do you, <laughs> I would love in a debate for somebody to ask Bernie Sanders that just go. Help us understand it. And I don't think it's when the actions don't match the words where it be your words kind of lose meaning a little bit. Well, let me just read then a little bit more of an article that's already kind of shown all its cards. Um, the spending is perfectly aligned with the hypocrisy and envy that continues to permeate the Democratic Party, whether it's like you said, Senator Bernie Sanders with his multi-million dollar net worth in three homes or Senator Elizabeth Warren, who earned well into the six figures teaching at Ivy League institutions. Their definition of, quote, too rich seems to be one dollar more than whatever they happen to be worth (laughs) at a given point in time. So clearly being sassy pants and trying to make a point. um, I don't know that this is reserved to Democrats or Republicans. I mean, I do believe I I agree with this sentiment. Politicians need to stop saying one thing while doing another. Living in a fancy house is admirable, but living in a glass house is contemptible. Ooh, that's a good writer that's right there. That's pretty good, right? And I, I think that could apply across the board. There you go. And I think that's why I wanted to bring it up. I think it goes for pastors, politicians, plumbers, what all peace. You see what I did there? <laughs> like, not only live by what you say you believe, but live up to your words. Live yeah, what you say. Right. So it, I, I would just love to hear him talk about it. I think it would be interesting. So. Yeah, I totally agree. Coming up next, new evidence that optimists live longer. That's next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Twitter at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com. Podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. We're getting good at this. That was the most ballparky you've ever sounded. Podcast. Podcast. (laughs) Can I get a Coke with that? I I would love to know how many eye rolls are happening right now, because you and I find that hilarious, and I bet you were the only ones. People found it hilarious. Like seven months ago. <laughs> yeah, and never again, right? A <laughs> uh, little programming note, reminder, uh, after this segment, I'm going to be taking off. Got family engagement to go to, so yep. uh, my man Ian's going to take it the rest of the way. In fact, you're going to have a very special guest who's smarter than you and I combined. Oh my so gosh. very excited and I'm, for and that. I'm so aware of it every single time. Yep. You're so not going to miss I'm the special gonna guest. I'm just going to step away. That's going to be after five o'clock hour. Uh, or after five o'clock during the five o'clock hour. Yes, whole hour. From five to six. And so I would encourage you to stay there. Every now and then we bring in guests where it's like, oh yeah, we should just have them. Like you and I should do less of the show. <laughs> I honestly was thinking of like questions to ask them and I kind of want to just point and say, 
Talk. Talk. <laughs> you say smart things now. That's how I always, uh, we, like, we like to meet at uh, Chick-fil-A, and every uh, single time I'm like, I'd like to talk less now. I'd like you to talk more, please. Just start talking, I, that's please. A, that's a true story. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, here we go. Uh, I can always tell. I always joke when you find the articles because they're from <laughs> places like medicalexpress.com. Uh, and this is a recent article as of like two days ago, medicalexpress.com. Tell us what's about. The headline says new evidence that optimists live longer. Yeah, I am. I am really interested in this topic. I'll just read a little bit to kind of get us into it and then get some of your thoughts. Uh, researchers from Boston University School of Medicine or BUSM for short, which Let's just call it Bussum. Bussum. We'll call it Bussum. Uh, National Center for PTSD at VA Boston Healthcare System and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health have found that individuals with greater optimism are more likely to live longer and to achieve exceptional longevity, that is, living to age 85 or older. Optimism refers to a general expectation that good things will happen or believing that the future will be favorable because we can control important outcomes. Wherever's research has identified many risk factors that increase the likelihood of disease and premature death. Much less is known about positive, what is that, psychosocial factors that can promote healthy aging. The study was based on 69,744 women and 1,429 men. I I wonder if the article will later tell us because I have no idea. Both groups completed survey measures to assess their level of optimism as well as their overall health and health habits such as diet, smoking, and alcohol use. Women were followed for 10 years Look at the men. while the men were followed for 30 years. When individuals were compared based on their initial levels of optimism, the researchers found that the most optimistic men and women demonstrated on average an 11 to 15% longer lifespan and had 50 to 70% greater odds of reaching 85 years old. Crazy. I'm going to read that one more time. The researchers found that the most optimistic men and women demonstrated on average 11 to 15% longer lifespan and had 50 to 70% greater odds of reaching 85 years old. I, I want to first pause and say, are you surprised by those findings. I am. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I, I'm not surprised that positive people, optimistic people live longer, but it's that much longer is. Right. Or that much more big, likely. More likely, yeah. I should say. Yes. That's that's the surprising thing. Like 11 to 15 years is that's or 11 to 15 percent, I should say. That's not a small amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's big. And so, um, yeah, I would say I'm surprised by the gap. By the, the, by the percentage gap? Yeah, yeah. It says the results uh, were maintained even after accounting for age, demographic factors such as educational attainment, chronic diseases, depression, and also health behaviors such as alcohol use, exercise, diet, and primary care visits. It goes on, it says, while research has identified many risk factors for diseases and premature death, we know relatively less about positive psychosocial factors that can promote healthy aging. Um, so they're, they're talking about how this is still sort of an enigma to most of the research, the study has strong public health relevance because it suggests that optimism is one such psychosocial asset that has the potential to extend the human lifespan. Interestingly, optimism may be modifiable using relatively simple techniques or therapies, which we've addressed earlier on the show in yeah. the last seven months. We've talked a lot about postures of gratitude, yep. simple disciplines of meditation. I mean, even things that in and you even mentioned this is maybe a month ago. How initially words like meditation had sort of rubbed you the wrong way, or you at least got skittish about it, right? I did, it was, especially when I was younger. I remember it was like new agey. It felt new agey. Yeah. Do you still feel that way now about no, some of those? You don't. I don't. Do you feel like people in the church still at large kind of do though? 
That's a good question. I think there's probably the generation above us probably does. That feels generational to me. Hmm. Um, I could be wrong. I could be 100 percent wrong about that. But that feels like it to me. I guess what raises the question for me is um, so. If somebody came to you and they're like, hey, I totally believe this. How do I become more, a more optimistic person? Yes, right. Well, how would you answer that question? Uh, well, I, I really don't know how to because I think that somebody who feels like they're hardwired for negativity, for yep. pessimism, that can feel like almost betraying the core of who you are. I oh, said this interesting. Like yeah. a day or two ago, I was reading a, an article from a neuroscientist that said, when it comes to negativity, our brains are like Velcro. Yeah, you and when it comes to positivity and beauty, it's like Teflon. So the very simple suggestion this person gave was um, when you notice a beautiful sunset mm. or a baby laughing, like don't just glance at it and move on to your next thing. Like force mm. yourself to enjoy it. They said the minimum time required for that to actually imprint on your brain is 15 seconds. Oh, wow. Which I'll be honest, didn't sound like anything. Nope. I was like, oh, nope. piece of cake. N- like pay attention the next time you notice a beautiful sunset mm. or something in your family. Yeah. 15 seconds actually feels like forever mm. to just simply stare. Like when, like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Ima- like imagine watching your kid just excel at something and you're like, Oh man. And we move on to the next thing. Right. Yeah. Like actually sitting in some of those things, I think is part of the key part of part of hitting pause and meditating and assuming a posture of gratitude requires us to actually sit and appreciate the good and the beautiful and the wonderful every once in a while, which is Way easier said than done. And I think what is important to realize is this could take some work. Like, that sounds obvious, but yeah, I, I think the easy thing is to go, well, I'm a, just a negative person. I'm a positive person. But you can change that at least yes, some. Totally, totally. And like you said, I think just being intentional, slowing down, uh-huh. uh, appreciating the things around you, I think they're important. And it says, you know, they, they the study says we're not sure why this is the case. It says uh-huh. positive people exercise more. They're less likely to smoke, which could help just less stress, but they don't really have an idea. But it, I don't know. I'm, I am blown away by this. And sometimes you and I read studies. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was clear. Oh, yeah, it's only like not that big a deal. But this one, I'm like, oh, this is pretty significant. This is a pretty big deal. Well, and here's the other piece that I find interesting. It's not just that they're more inclined to have healthier habits, which that's a little bit of cart or horse, yep. chicken or egg. Like, Good wait, point. do they do they have these better habits because they're optimistic or are they optimistic because they're, they've been disciplined in establishing Good these point. habits? Yep. But uh, one of the doctors said other research suggests that more optimistic people may be able to regulate emotions and behavior as well as bounce back from stressors and difficulties more effectively. So think of somebody in your life, Brian, mm-hmm. who like, man, no matter what life throws at this guy, he just bounces back. It's yes. unreal. It's, I, I, we all know people like that. You're yep. like, how are they able to do that? Their research is finding that at its core, it's actually optimism, which sometimes can be blind optimism, yep. right? We all know those people, too. We're like, this guy's house is on fire. Yep. And he's like, you guys want to roast marshmallows? You're like, holy cow. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. What is up with this guy? That's you know what funny. I mean? Like, so obviously, I think, and the article doesn't really stress this, but how do you know someone's being too optimistic? How do you know, they're, true. How do you know if they're not being realistic? What's interesting in this is I think I used to be someone who was too optimistic. Oh, really? And uh, I don't mean to sound so surprised. Really, Brian? Because really? you're so depressing now. I actually think that this is, this is a good point for me because I think this is something you have to work at because I think yeah. as, I've had a great life, but as life beats you down a little bit, right, as you get older, you lose some of that optimism, <laughs> totally. even if you're a naturally optimistic person. Totally. And so I do think there's some fighting to keep it here that I think is something to consider. Well, and I think uh, not to get all biblical on us. Please do. When you think of like when the psalmist says, taste and see that mm-hmm. the Lord is good, mm-hmm. like that's experiential language. When yep. you talk about Jesus pointing out to kids and saying, they're closer to the kingdom than you religious experts. Yep. I wonder if like awe and wonder isn't a part of optimism yes. part of like really like you were saying 
life just sometimes beats that out of you. Yes. And to pursue that, I think, is maybe part of what spiritual formation looks like. Oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. I'm optimistic the rest of the show is going to go well. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> I'll take the prayers, too, though. For Ian Simpkins, <laughs> my name is Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm had to duck out. Coming up next hour, a dear friend of mine, a mentor, Dr. John Armstrong, is sticking around for the entire hour. But I wanted to I wanted to try something that honestly kind of terrifies me a little bit. I just wanted to take just this little bit of time and try it solo. I've, I've, have, I've never done this before. Uh, we were just talking about this story about the power of optimism, and it, it kind of got me thinking. Towards the end, we were talking a little bit about how life has a way of kind of beating wonder and awe out of us. It's why I often think that when Jesus is pointing to kids saying, these kids are actually closer to the kingdom than a lot of you religious experts. I think part of what he's saying there is wonder and awe is, is kind of at the core of like really, really understanding the scandal of the kingdom. And I thought about this story and I think I've shared it on the show before, but when I was in India, there was this family that had told me we were sitting on this dirt floor that they prayed for us Christians in America because they couldn't imagine how difficult it would be to actually pursue Jesus in a place as distracting as the United States. And I remember thinking, how odd that you would pray for me. Like I'm sitting on a dirt floor, like you're, you're in abject poverty by most standards. And they're like, how? How do you actually pursue Jesus with all the distractions of everything else that's going on? And it made me think of another story. A couple of days later, after that interaction, I was visiting with a, uh, with a Hindu family and they had like a little two-room dirt floor corrugated metal hut. And the family all lived in one room. And they had this whole other room dedicated to their deity. And the thing that really struck me was that even though they had such little space, they dedicated an entire space for their deity. And what struck me was that outside of that room, all of their shoes were lined up. And I thought, how interesting that they don't even wear their shoes in this room committed to their deity because of this belief of how sacred and holy that space was. And I was like, gosh, that reminds me so much of the interaction of Moses with the burning bush that God's speaking to Moses. And the first thing he says is take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And I'm looking at this family and I'm like, they're, they're worshiping a statue. And yet there's such an awareness for them of like the sacred dignity of this space. that They don't even wear their shoes, even though it's a dirt floor with corrugated metal walls. And I thought, how, how odd it is for me to be so convicted by the flippancy that I often talk about God or pursue God. And to be really honest, so often I, I kind of go about my day sort of unaware of the presence of God. And this is where I think kids get it right. Kids see beauty and wonder and all. One of my favorite things now is that when I, when I get home, my boy, my eldest, stops whatever he's doing. He drops all of his toys. He grabs my hand and he walks me right back to the front door. And we just walk together. It's like my favorite part of the whole day. And what's fascinating to me is he, he notices things that I would never notice. And he like shouts and he freaks out and he like points to this flower and he points to this ant. And he's just, the only word I can think of is captivated. Like he sees beauty in everything around him. And I, I was thinking about this the other day that how often in our Christian lives, we just sort of become spectators, right? Like cynicism has a way of, kind of creating this hard shell around us and we just sort of observe from a distance. And I think Jesus invites us 
to be participants in this thing called life, to be captivated, to be caught up in, in wonder and awe. And I think when we talk about the psalmist saying, taste and see that the Lord is good, that's participatory. That That's meant to be experiential. And I, I was doing some reading um, years ago, and I was really captivated by this idea of the transcendentals. And the transcendentals kind of borrow from Plato and Aristotle, but the Catholic Church spent a lot of effort talking about the transcendentals, which are essentially truth, goodness, and beauty. So truth is sort of like your doctrine piece, and goodness is sort of your ethics piece. But then there's this this third peg called beauty that I thought, I've never really heard a pastor ever talk about beauty, the importance, the significance of of beauty and wonder and awe. And, and apparently our, our tradition has has whole libraries filled with the significance, the theological, ecclesiological significance of captivation, of, of wonder, of awe. And I thought, man, I'm getting a glimpse of that in my boy by seeing the way that he he sees the world through beauty. And I, I thought of like the old Oscar Wilde quote, man is hungry for beauty, there is a void. Or the, uh, the Russian novelist and philosopher uh, Dostoevsky, he said, beauty will save the world. I remember reading that 12 years ago thinking, what does he mean by that? And the older that I get and the more that I realize like how easy it is to fall into the trap of, of cynicism or just sort of calendar maintenance, walking with my boy and being like, he's captivated by something. I think about even that family in India. I'm like, they're captivated by something. And it's, it's like doing something to their heart. There's a, uh, a mid-19th century poet and lecturer named Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, never lose an opportunity of seeing anything beautiful for beauty is God's handwriting. I love that beauty is God's handwriting. I thought, how often do we miss that in just the rush of daily life, right? Like we're just running from thing to thing to thing. And that's that's normal. That's how so many of us live our lives. But if you go back to Genesis, right, in, in the creation story, what I find so interesting is that, you know, up until the creation of man, God God is speaking and the world comes into existence. He's literally speaking and everything is created as a response to his word. But when it comes to humans, he doesn't speak. What does he do? He forms. He like gets dirt under his proverbial nails. And there's this, it's the first glimpse that we get of God as like this craftsman, this, this former. And I think we have to first remember that we were created by a creator God to be creative. And so often I think we, we let these passions kind of go in pursuit of wealth or, or prosperity or notoriety or whatever it is, but how you begin the story will inescapably shape the story you're telling. And it begins first by God who like kneels down and breathes life into us. And a story for an ancient Jewish audience, a story about someone who builds something in six days is a temple story. And the last thing someone would do is put an image of that God in the temple as a way of, of reflecting back to the world the God that made it or the God that it represents. That's part of our role on planet earth. That's why I think the apostle Paul is often saying things like, man, whatever you do, if you're eating or you're drinking, whatever that activity is, do it under the glory of God. It's part of the cultural mandate in Genesis. God, God says to man and woman, this is the world. Now go create, dream, develop, organize like, like for the Christ follower. I don't think there is such a thing as the sacred secular divide. I think it's all, charged with the grandeur of God. So whatever it is that you do, you get to do that as an act of worship to be caught up in wonder and awe. And and that's what I find so interesting about beauty because it seems like beauty, beauty isn't interested in convincing. It's interested in inviting. And a couple of years ago, I I started an organization called beauty in the common. And that's kind of grown into this whole other thing called the common year. And it's 
become this kind of beautiful collaboration of people experiencing and wrestling with this idea of what does it mean to be caught up in wonder and awe in an age and an era where that's just so difficult. And I, and maybe you're listening and you're thinking, man, I, I feel like at the end of my rope, I hope, I hope that you, I hope that you hear this, that you, you are an image bearer with a job to do, but not a job doer with an image to maintain. And I think we get that so out of whack when we forget that like God created for the joy of creating, like he didn't have to create at all. And we see just this overflow of joy and he, he invites us to, to, to love and to experience and to beauty. And I think in creation, right, we see that human life was created by God. It belongs to God, exists for God. And I think we're restless until we find God ourselves. I, and I think we will often pursue all these other things in the hopes that it brings some sort of meaning or purpose. But this is also the God that says that we can rest, right? That to see beauty in an age of cynicism takes courage, but to stand against the flow of what culture says we need to pursue or what we go after, we say, no, 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 our God calls us to a higher calling, a higher way of living our lives. And I'll, I'll end with this because it's it's been a quote that's always meant a lot to me. And uh, it's from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She says, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. May we be a people, friends, who take off our shoes. This has been The Common Good. On AM 1160, hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, but Brian Fromm did have to duck out. But good news, you can still find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, wherever it is you get your podcast. If that is you, uh, thank you for podcasting. Why don't you share that with a friend? Or an enemy. Share it with an enemy and start a discussion. That could be fun. Um, But in Brian's absence, I have to tell you, uh, I am absolutely thrilled. So excited to have in the studio my good friend, Dr. Wright Reverend, John Armstrong. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Ian. (laughs) Dr. Wright Reverend, is that the official? I haven't had those titles in years. (laughs) I was trying to think of other synonyms, but I just uh, just drew a blank. I'll be giving them throughout the show. I, I had some flooring done in my house recently, and the two guys that were doing the work are Romanian. Oh, okay. And the lead guy said to me, God bless you. And I said, you Christian? He said, yeah. I said, you Orthodox? He said, no, evangelical. I said, what, Baptist? He said, yeah, evangelical Baptist. I said, wonderful. And then he started asking me about me, and I started telling him who I was and what I did. And yeah. he'd, he'd, he'd been moving stuff around in my house, and he'd seen these plaques and these books. Right, and he right. said, oh, he said, you've written all these books? I said, yeah. He got all these plaques on the wall, all this stuff. He said, what'd you do? Well, I told him a little bit, and he said, so what do I call you? Reverend, doctor, pastor, <laughs> author? I said, you know what, Claudio? Call me brother. Oh, I love that. And I said, hey, if brother Roger can found Tizay, yeah, then brother John is all right. I love, I love that. <laughs> well, that's a great segue, too, because I do want to make sure, cards on the table, there are very few people in my life that I have called and referred to as a mentor, and you are one of them. And for you and I, and we'll probably get into this later, it was almost inevitable like i think the first time i think somebody else actually said the two of you need to be friends yeah, and they sort of teed it up for us yeah, so yeah. maybe we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later but what i do like having guests do especially if people aren't familiar 
with who they are is to introduce themselves. So to an audience maybe that doesn't know who you are, how would how would you, Dr. Reverend Pastor Brother John Armstrong, <laughs> introduce yourself to people? Gosh. Short and to the point. Um, <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you just just the facts. All right, I'll take it. And then we'll go from there. Just the facts. Um, I was born in 1949, so you can quickly calculate that I'm 70. Um, I grew you up, overestimate my calculation okay, speed. Well, <laughs> I grew up in the Deep South um, in the pre-civil rights era um, in a Christian home, a very committed, faithful Christian home hmm. uh, in a white segregated church where in the 1950s, I was the precocious little kid saying, where are the black people? Hmm. Shut up, kid. Don't ask those questions. This is the way God ordained it. Oh, okay. Thank you. So, um, lo and behold, I finished uh, my high school education at a military academy, and I went to the University of Alabama shortly after George Wallace blocked the door and said, segregation now, segregation forever. And uh, those were very, very full couple years. I remember standing there in 1968 on April 4th when I heard that Dr. King had been killed. My life was being turned inside out by Mm. the racial animus, by the tension, by the background, by having a sense of what I would now call the prophetic, not the prophetic in that I always saw things in advance, but I Mm. saw things and felt I had to speak about them. Mm. Sometimes in my own spirit, in my own flesh, in my own ego, but often I think in the spirit of God, I would say something's not right here. Something's fishy in Denmark. We ought to talk about this. Mm. We ought to deal with this. This is wrong. This is not right. Mm. So those, that was my, those were my formative experiences. So with that background, I knew in my sophomore year in college, I was called to the ministry and uh, felt that I needed more formal education for that purpose. Had never visited Chicago. I visited Chicago as a 12-year-old boy. Uh, I had never been on the campus of Wheaton College, but I had read through Gates of Splendor the story of the missionary yes. martyrs from Wheaton. Yes. And people said, you go to Wheaton because of Billy Graham. No, I like Billy Graham, but he had nothing to do with my going to Wheaton. It was those missionary martyrs that made me think Wheaton might be a cool place to get a good no education. Kidding. So I applied. I was accepted. A whole other long story. Came to Wheaton, and I've been in the Chicago area ever since. No kidding. Uh, two degrees from Wheaton, uh, pastored a church in Bolingbrook in the 19, early 1970s, church in Wheaton in the 70s and 80s, and in 1992 formed an international ministry that you were a part of, mm-hmm. uh, eventually called Act 3 Network. And uh, the basic call of that ministry was to bring Christian leaders and others together around a common call to do the mission of Christ in unity with all Christians, yes. Catholic. Orthodox, Protestant, progressive, conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-doubting, whatever. I mean, it's like, let's get the family talking again. Mm -hmm. Let's get Christians loving one another again. Hey, there's a radical idea here, John 13, 34, that you love one another as I've loved you. (laughs) This is my new commandment. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, what if we actually did that? Right. So what it a captured, novel idea. Yeah, a novel idea. It captured, as you know, it captured my mind, my heart, my passion. And all this background the last 30 years got tossed into that one calling of mm. John 13, 34. How do I do this? How do I share this? How do I mentor this? How do I preach this? How do I write this? Yeah. So that's what makes me tick. So I love, that was a really, really good introduction, by the way, because <laughs> there's pieces of that that I didn't even know. And the fancy word for what it is that you've dedicated your life to now is ecumenism, right? Yeah, is this I call, pursuit. Yeah, I call it missional, missional hyphen ecumenism. I love it. Because it's the kingdom of God is the good news of the mission. 
But the mission can't be accomplished, John seventeen twenty one. Jesus says, mm. unless we love one another, and that love means unless we have unity with yes. one another. It doesn't mean union, doesn't mean agreement. Right. We got to get over this business of we all got to be in the same church, or we all got to agree right. on right. baptism or predestination or, or all of this stuff we debate. Yes. We don't have to agree. We have to agree that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is our Savior. That's right. We can follow him together and pursue unity in the midst of diversity. Absolutely. But we don't understand that because we haven't lived it in the American church for most of our 400 years of history. That's right. And I, so I, it's a perfect example because right over your shoulder, I see our producer and he's like fist pumping in the air. <laughs> I think everyone that's hearing what you just said is maybe feeling the same way. Why is it so difficult? Well, I think, I think the fact that he's pumping his fist in the air and, and, and you're positive <laughs> says you're of a generation that's just mm. had enough of it. Mm. Generally speaking, uh, your generation and those younger than you that are the next generation coming, they look at me and say, what's the big deal? Why don't you people get over this? Why can't you at least sit in the same room and talk to each right, other? Right. Sure, you disagree. We disagree, but we don't walk out of the room. You always walk out, Interesting. Meaning, meaning my generation. So I think there is a generational split here. Hmm. And this is one of those areas where I, I don't have a lot of hope for my generation. Uh, my hope for your generation and those that are coming behind you is 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 exactly here. You're willing to stay in the room. You're willing to keep learning. You're willing to keep processing friendship yes. without walking out on one another. Now, there are other things you don't have that I hope I can contribute as an old guy hmm. to what's coming. But I think you have what we did not have, which is an openness to the church looking very differently. And I don't mean different music or different right, forms right, or right. Di- different kind of stuff up on the stage or whatever we call it up there. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about real significant life-changing difference yes those are just forms the forms will come and go that's not the critical thing but we spent a whole generation my generation preaching and leading with the forms and saying this isn't the new thing that's fast well the new thing's now old so how about how about we actually get back to the most basic things well and that actually is in a lot of ways the heartbeat for this show the common good we really anchored in on that word common that in an era where we just seem to be yelling from our echo chambers louder and louder and i remember one of the gatherings at mundelein Somebody had made a comment that where we can't have doctrinal ecumenism, we can't have relational ecumenism. And I remember really seeing you in that moment as, wow, in a lot of ways, the relational component is John Armstrong. He he is the one by the power of the Holy Spirit who has brought these people together for this conversation. So I'm personally thrilled that you're going to stick around for the whole hour. Next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about missional ecumenism, where you see it's really at work, but where maybe you see some of the struggles and the blind spots. And that is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is MIA. If you've seen him, let us know. We're very concerned. But you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us on your telephone if you want, 312-660-2594. But I I am always so excited to have guests, but extra excited for this very special full-hour guest, Dr. John Armstrong, friend, mentor, brother, all around. I mean, you're probably going to get a sense of this. Just one of the smartest dudes that I know. I remember the first time that we got lunch together. I'm sure it was Chick-fil-A. That's where we always go. (laughs) And I remember about 10 or 15 minutes into the conversation, feeling in my gut like, I don't want to speak anymore. I just want to listen to him. <laughs> like it, you were giving language, honestly, truly, this was such a, I don't know that I've ever told you this. I, I had this like burning desire for unity and had never heard the word ecumenism before. 
And maybe that's why someone teed up for us to be friends. And I remember the first 10 minutes, you started talking about your life's passion. And I remember thinking, oh, there's language for this. Someone's doing the work of this. And I'd love to know, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, where do you think that comes from? That like, it's so clear, that's what drives you. That's what makes your heart beat fast. Where, where did that come from? And, and maybe what are some ways forward when it comes to missional ecumenism? Well, for me, it comes, it, it comes out of life, out of doing and living life. Mm. Um, my call to this missional ecumenism was uh, pretty passionate, pretty, pretty God intoxicated, pretty, pretty supernatural mm. is a simple way to put it. Um, I was um, a featured speaker in uh, the world of, of a fairly popular, um, aggressive teaching reformed Christianity. Um, and I was one of the voices on the platform with some who are still living, some who are deceased mm. names. If I started dropping names, listeners would at least know the names. Mm. Um, so I was, that was my crowd and I was to speak at a conference and, uh, you can actually see a sermon in which I tell this story on my website, but I was speaking at a conference in Philadelphia at a famous church. Uh, and I grew up in a home where my mother listened to Christian radio in the 1950s, and one of her heroes was a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Mm. And Dr. Barnhouse was a systematic Bible teacher, uh, nationally well-known. And so I was to preach in his pulpit at 10th Presbyterian Philadelphia, and I had a sermon, and I was about to get up and speak, and I had a a vision. Wow. I don't know what to call it. I'm, I don't fit the category of people who have visions. So mm. it was like, what is that? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't have any definition for it, but right. what is happening? <laughs> and I say that not to, to draw attention to what happened to me, but you asked me where it came from. Yeah. And and so in this vision, to shorten it, there was this person calling me and calling me on the basis of John seventeen twenty one, when Jesus prayed for the unity of those who would be his disciples and, and calling me to be an agent of reconciliation an agent who would lay down his life if necessary mm. so that the church would see what unity really looked like. Yes. Um, and there's a whole bunch of background to that. But I had this vision, and in the vision, the Lord called me to lay down my life at his feet and say, take up this, preach this. This wow. is of me. I want you to do this. Wow. I've called you to do this. It's like, whoa. Go back to the hotel, get on my knees and say, what was that? And then go to bed thinking, I think it was God, but I've never had that kind of thing happen before. Right. Well, Ian, this thing happened several more times no over kidding. the next several years in several public settings as well as in private settings finally culminated in a series of dreams. And I'm not into dream interpretation at <laughs> all. I'm a very rational reform guy by background. So, so I started having these dreams and in the dreams, it was the same thing. Wow. And I'm standing up to preach. And at that point, I'd preached in mega churches and promise keepers and all these places. I'm standing up to preach. And it's like, when are you going to do what I told you to do? Wow. Well, Lord, I, I will. But uh, and then one of the dreams, I get up and I start giving this message and people start getting up and walking out. No kidding. And I look out and the crowd's all gone and I'm staying there alone. And then I hear this voice saying, will you still follow me if they all leave? Wow. Um, yeah, Lord, I will. Um, I will. And so, by God's grace, I did. Wow. And almost all of them left. <laughs> and then you came along. <laughs> and, then, and then we were at Chick-fil-A. That and was then it. we were at Chick-fil-A. That's the whole story, man. I mean, all my friends left. I had to make new friends. <laughs> and I am happy to be counted among your friends then. <laughs> now, they didn't all leave, but I mean, truly, yeah. most of my recognizable name mm. friends there. I mean, it's kind of fun to be in a radio studio because there are radio programs <laughs> that used to have me that wouldn't have me anymore. Right. 
uh, I got tainted. And what did mm-hmm. I get tainted with? Well, he's compromised his faith. He's talking to Catholics. Oh, right. Oh, really? That's compri- compromised to talk to Catholics? Right. Where'd you get that? Mm. Um, I mean, or he's talking to those Methodists or those Lutherans or right. whatever. Right. Fill in the Fill blank. Fill in the blank. Yeah. So, so it's like, oh, and then the Internet stuff started. This, the Internet was just starting to get popular by, you mm. know, at this point. At first it was, I mean, in a, in a magazine, a popular Christian magazine that slandered me. And I wrote him a letter and said, you know, you, you slandered me. And they printed my letter and letters to the editor, but they gutted my letter. And no one knew they gutted it and Ugh. made me look terrible by gutting what I actually wrote. Ugh. So I realized you don't defend yourself. Don't even try. Right. Just stay the course. Yes. Follow the call of God and do what he told you to do. And what he told me to do, Ian, was to be an agent of receptive ecumenism, of the kind of life that is receptive towards the other. Yes. And says, because you're a Christian, I welcome you into my life. And I welcome you as my brother, as my friend, as my sister, to learn to love and to serve with you. I love and that. I began to try to live that out. And it sounds so simple. Um but living it was complicated. What I'm seeing now is that there are many under 40 Christians who, again, are just kind of fed up with the old stuff. And they're saying, well, of course. So I don't quite know where I fit at 70, except I guess I'm the <laughs> old guy that kind of pioneered out into this direction. And, and I enjoy it with all my heart. And I intend to do it till the day I die. Well, you OK. So you mentioned this a little earlier that the. The 40 and under crowd does sort of have this, of course, posture, but you had, you had mentioned, I also think that there's something that my generation can offer. What, can you speak to that a little bit more? Like what, what do young people, young leaders, young evangelicals, young Catholics need to learn from those in their 60s, 70s, and 80s? I think, I think what you can most learn from somebody, you know, my age is, is uh, to learn to ask the kinds of questions that draw off of the wisdom of life experience. Mm. Um, and you're good at that. And so that's not a false form of flattery. It's true. You're good at that. And that's part of why our friendship is what it is, is that in truth, it's mutuality. You give to me things that encourage me and I give things to you that encourage you. Mm. I think that's I think that's the key. I think the other key is is to learn how um, I gave my final message at my before my retirement at our gathering in Wisconsin this year mm-hmm. in June and it was on uh, Jesus calling us to be his friends. If you obey me, I will call you friends. And I said, I now realize that, that the key to my life through my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and now to 70, is that I sought and made and preserved and loved my friends. Mm. And I believe that's what Jesus actually incarnated with the disciples. They weren't, they weren't teachers that he called to teach, <laughs> to take to seminary in the wilderness. <laughs> they were his friends. Yes, they right. were his dearest friends, right. and three of them were especially dear friends. Uh-huh. Yes, and and it's that friendship that is missing. Ecclesial leadership. We've taught so much stuff. I want to say garbage about friendship mm. and seminars and big name leaders. Nobody talks about ecclesial friendship. Yes. About Christian friendship is the basis of ministry in the church. We so just good. don't get it. Your generation gets that intuitively. Hmm. I think my generation or people like me can help you put the theology and the scripture and the stuff around it from actually having tried to live it out for decades. And you think about how diverse that group of friends was for Jesus, right? Yes. Just at the yes. surface, yeah. right? A, a Roman trader, a zealot. Yeah. A, I mean, people I've, that you would never have guessed. Yeah. 
So if that's what socialist and far right Republicans, <laughs> right, the whole exactly, crowd, right? I exactly. mean, they were there in his group, totally his friends. But we look at his group of friends and f- seem to feel no conviction that our group of friends should look as equally as diverse, which is what I think makes what yes. you do more timely than ever. And I don't know if I'm just now paying more attention than I typically have, but it feels like the call to unity, to missional ecumenism is so mission critical. It's so urgent. And uh, mm-hmm. so that's what I want to talk to you about next a little bit. How do we actually get there? What are some of the things that you're seeing? What are some of the cautions? How do we actually live this out better? That's coming up next with Dr. John Armstrong here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I wish you all could have seen John's face when that music came in. It's exactly how I was feeling. Your face perfectly embodied (laughs) what my heart was feeling. (laughs) That chuckle on the other side of the desk here is my friend and mentor, Dr. John Armstrong, and uh, all sorts of credentials. I could spend the rest of the show talking about your credentials, but the thing that I think has kind of drawn us to each other uh, is this insatiable desire for unity, for real unity. Exactly what you were saying, not just blanket uniformity, not just we all look and talk and act and think exactly the same. That's that's actually not unity at all. I think that's a boring picture of what I think a lot of people have been handed, which is why we've struggled to really see it. I'm curious, are you seeing growth in this area, like particularly Protestant Catholic? Are you seeing improvements there? Are there cautions to the types of growth and improvements you're seeing and like what are some encouragements or ways forward like help give us some meat on the bone some handles to really Mm -hmm. grapple with this a little bit yeah there 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 has been uh, there has been movement from when i started down this road 25 plus years ago uh movement on many fronts but it i think it's important to say it's not institutional movement Mm. there is a form of ecumenism and i've been part of it and i believe in it of institutions talking to institutions. Mm. So at the highest level of global Christianity, the Catholic Church talks to the Orthodox Church, right. the two largest Christian communions in the world. Right. The Methodists and the Catholics have conversations and papers and gatherings of scholars. The Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Baptists, the Pentecostals, mm. all these groups have major global dialogical events with the Catholic Church. Mm. That's been going on for about 100 years especially the last 50 plus years since Vatican II. Right. That's good stuff. I speak in that world. I write in that world. I've published in that world. I'm speaking at a conference at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago this fall to scholars in missions who teach missions, Catholic and Protestant, Hmm. giving a paper on the Pope and Hmm. on my reading of the Pope in terms of his evangelism and mission ideas. And I'm a Protestant. So right, right. that kind of stuff goes on. And I like it. It's cool. I, I like scholarship. I like to dabble and do my work. But at heart, I'm still a practitioner yes. who believes that that scholarship needs to get out to people. Now, where I really see it happening, Ian, is I see in informal ways, in ways that you you can't put a structure around, I see things happening and they're they're just they're just exploding. Mm. Um, they're not massive. Um, they're like I'm looking out the window at little puffy, fluffy clouds in the blue sky of a sunny day in Chicago. And, and they're like the little puffy clouds out there. Mm. It's not a totally blue sky. There's some clouds. And those clouds, I think, are filled with some little mini blessings that are falling on Christians who are serious about John 17, 21. Mm. They've seen it. They believe it. They can't let go of it because it's it's caught them and taken them into it in the spirit and prayer of Jesus. 
And they've understood that the Lord's great prayer was for the unity of his church. And they've just been caught up in Jesus's prayer. They, hmm. they can't let go because they've been taken. Right. So, so I see that happening. Um, and as you know, what happened to the ministry that I began all those years ago was, as it began to wind down, I for decades had said, when the time comes for me to step down, yes. I want to graciously, faithfully step down. And I believe probably at that point in time, that the ministry I've been doing should also shut down. Mm. Why? Because I don't believe that I believe churches should go on, but I believe most other kinds of ministries, unless they're large ministries of, of service and compassion and things like that, that generally speaking, one person led ministries ought mm. to just stop. Mm. We don't need them. God will raise up somebody else. Mm. It's his work. So I presented that to the board of the <laughs> ministry and said, I'm going to retire and it'll be two years or three years, but, you can bank on it. I'm going to step down. Really? Who's going to take your place? I said, no one. I've been saying that for years. It's right. like, knock, knock. Have you been listening? <laughs> right. So so we got kind of sat there kind of stunned. And and one of the board members, who you know well, is a Catholic priest in the city. He, he kind of used some colorful language to say, <laughs> uh, why did I come on this board if you're going to step down? You know, like, I don't get yep. it. What yep. is going on here? Was I misled? Did I, did you not give me the warnings? Mm. I said, well, I'm sorry, but. This has kind of been a part of the drinking water here for a while. So we sat around and and uh, at Green Lake, Wisconsin, and we prayed and we talked. We took a break. We came back and our good friend George Koch asked the group, what is there in the DNA of what we've been about by surrounding this man's gifts and his mission that might be something God has put in us mm. and that it ought to go on beyond him and his leadership with a with a form, who knows what the form looks like, right. but it ought to be something that has changed us that we share with others that are on this journey. Mm. And this is where the Catholics were big because they said, well, that's how Catholic orders start. Right. That's how movements in the Catholic church start. Now, shift gears for a minute. How do movements start in the evangelical church? Somebody gets a grand idea. God blesses it. And they run off with it and they split from the church and they divide Christians <laughs> and you like them or you don't like them. Right. And they're over here building another thing. Mm. Right. In the Catholic church, it's a beautiful thing. You don't leave the church. You stay in the church. But the church is such a big tent that it can incorporate all these. Gifts, right. Which we miss in our having separated, which is tragic. So. The Catholic said to us, well, we think God has given a charism, a calling to this guy, and we think God is now passing it on to us mm. and to others who will come behind us. So the question became, within a few hours, how do we do that? I don't know. Maybe we wait on God and ask him and learn a lot and study movements and see what he's done in the past and what we think he's doing now. And, and we talk and we pray, and we did that for three years. Mm. Now, it's interesting. I said earlier, I'm 70. When I was 40, I couldn't wait three years for anything. Right. Man, at 50, it was a little better. At 60, I was like, at 70, I can wait three years. Wow. You say, why? You're, you're closer to the end than the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Because I'm closer to the end, I don't have to hurry up. Oh, I just wow. need to keep processing and, and doing what I should be doing. Yeah. So none of us were in a hurry. And that was part of the key. We just waited and asked and listened and, and invited people to come and interact with us. And they came and interacted and they went home and some of them came back. And the process goes on until finally... This year, two months ago, we formed a covenant community of Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox Christians from all backgrounds, mm -hmm. black, white, Asian, Hispanic, millennials, a few Gen Z's, boomers, Xers. We're all together, male and female. Love it. Gay and straight. Mm -hmm. That'll shock some people. Mm -hmm. But but the whole community's there. And you know what draws them there? 
they all confess, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to talk to other people who want to follow him and pursue unity together, That's period. Right. That's so say, well, what's your confession of faith? We don't have one. Mm. Well, why not? Don't you believe in him? Yeah, I actually believe in him. I, I can say the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. but the Apostles' Creed never mentions love. The Apostles' Creed never calls us into this unity. It assumes things and it puts up fences to keep out false teaching, which is important, yes. but it's not a first importance. First importance is to get people to Jesus, to get them around Jesus and in Jesus and in each other. That's right. And like we jump that lesson to go fight the fights over the doctrine. Yes, exactly. exactly. So it's like, this is so basic. But it's been lost, hmm. and I think it's being recovered, and I think just like the clouds I see, I think they're little clouds, and they're dropping little b- So I get emails, I get calls, I get contacts from people all over this country and beyond saying, I feel like I'm weird, but this is what I'm thinking, and I say, you're not weird, <laughs> you're God's not doing weird. this. That's right. You're not weird, man. I, I assure you, God is doing this, and you're on the right track. That's so good. All right, so I imagine people might be listening with bated breath. How can they learn more about this community? What is it called? Where do they go? I want to make sure that we put okay. that out, out in okay. front of everybody. Okay, the community is called The Initiative, and you can go to theinitiative.org. I think that's right. Yeah, I should have this up beforehand. <laughs> yeah, theinitiative.org. And me, you can go to johnharmstrong.com. And that'll go right to you, and they that'll can contact right you. To, if someone's yes. listening and they're like, okay, I have a thousand more questions yes. now. Yes, they can contact me through that website, and they can write, email me through that website, and they can... I know the website will connect to the initiative. So if I, I can't remember if it's .org or .com, I actually am not making these calls anymore. <laughs> I have retired, which means the people in leadership, I'm not on the team, I'm not on the council. I don't preach. I don't lead. I'm a member of the community. Mm-hmm. That's all I am. Now, you say, well, why you did all this work? Because to me, Ian, the way you allow things to happen finally is you get you step aside That's and right. you let people lead. You're there to encourage and to help, but you're not going to be the co-leader. You're done. That's right. I can't tell you how many men have called me who followed people and who said, Thank you for what you're doing. And I say, why? It's no big deal. <laughs> oh, it is a big deal. I followed this or I followed that. And they won't they won't let me do what's right. in my heart to do. Right. And you did that. And I said, there's nothing heroic about that. It's just a basic philosophy about serving and leading and and and, and giving things away because yes. they were given to me. That's I, right. But that's that's boomer stuff. And again, I think the next generation thinks very differently. I think you're right on. And I did just look it up. It is the initiative dot org. I see Scott Brill's lovely face right there on the homepage. Also coming up next, I want to ask you about your book, Costly Love. It's the uh, it's the first time I've ever been asked to write an endorsement for a book. So I really, really believe in this book. I want to get maybe a little political, if that's okay. Why not wrap up the show with a little politics? And uh, that's been Dr. John Armstrong here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is out for the rest of the show, but don't fret, he'll be back tomorrow. But I'm so excited to have in the studio, in the flesh, incarnate, he might say, Dr. John Armstrong, my friend, a mentor, an author, preacher, leader, a missional ecumenist. If you don't know what that is, go listen to the podcast. But here's what I want to end the show, John, because our conversations, and I can't tell you how many times I've wished we've recorded our conversations, (laughs) which maybe that'd be more dangerous than I realize actually, but um, (laughs) you have such a capacity to see the common thread in things that I think transcends a lot of the rhetoric that I tend to see online. And I just want to tee up this question and just see where you run with it. Okay. Because I'd mentioned it kind of during the break, this idea of a theology of politics. Mm -hmm. What does that, what does that even look like in our divided time right now? Mm. Great question, because there was a time in my journey in my 30s and 40s when I would have said the church just needs to stay out of politics. Right. 
Um, in fact, that was what uh, in the 60s and into the early 70s, I think the common response of more conservative and evangelical churches and pastors and leaders was stay out of politics. Mm. Then in the Carter years, in the late 70s, we began to talk about engaging politics. And uh, no one ever really stopped to say, hey, wait a minute, it's good that we engage politics. Staying out was a bad thing. Mm. But how are we engaging? Why are we engaging? To what end or purpose are we engaging in the political? Simply as a raw use of power for what we believe is the common good over against others? Mm. Or do we actually have a kind of civility? Are we rooted in love for God and love for our neighbors that embraces a civility and a kindness and a decency that is at its core what is necessary to preserve what we call democracy in a pluralistic culture? Can Christians actually lead the way, as it were, rather than just simply be the party of opposition? Mm. Um, So... That's where I think we went wrong. So when we jumped back into politics, we had been in politics as Christians, Bible-believing Christians long before, mm-hmm. but we'd been out of it for decades. And we jumped back in in the Carter and then into the, in the Reagan years, we jumped in big time. Right. And we actually issued voter guides telling people what the eight important issues were. <laughs> like six of them had nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Right. They were just, they were about economics and about Red China and the Soviet Union and strong military. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I've read my Bible for years. Where mm. are you getting all this stuff? Mm. And they want me to hand these out to my congregation. I think I was the only evangelical pastor in town that said, leave those out. I don't want them. No kidding. Uh, I remember when the prayer in the school's decision was made back in that same era and Christians were up in arms. You kick God out of public life. I said, good Lord, help us. <laughs> you know, I actually believe we should have taken prayer out of the school, but mm. no one ever asked why. We just said it's you, you hate prayer. You hate God. This mm. is a secular country. Huh. Well, it, and it, it was a Christian. No, it wasn't a Christian country. It was a Protestant country. The reason for these things like prayer in the school and putting a, uh, putting God in the Pledge of Allegiance in the 1950s and all this was to kind of build a religion that was mm. inherently Protestant, but civil enough to let Catholics in the door now. Mm. And uh, so, so we have a long history of messing this up. Yeah. And quite frankly, we messed it up again. So. Where did we go bad? Well, we lost the pursuit of the common good. Mm. We lost the idea of a common life that Christians share with others. Yeah. So I referred uh, when we were we were off air to the fact that there's a, a scholar at Duke named Luke Bretherton. He's an Anglican who's written a wonderful encyclopedic big book. Most people won't want to devour a big book, <laughs> but it's called Christ. I love the title Christ in the Common Life political theology and the case for democracy. And Bretherton has a whole chapter on Pentecostals, a whole chapter on Catholics, a whole chapter on evangelicals. No kidding. And and he integrates what's the Holy Spirit's role in politics? What's the the role of the church in politics? And he comes at it from every possible angle to say that what we're pursuing is the common life of all people for their betterment, for their good, for their protection, for for, uh, the love of one another. Mm -hmm. And that's where the gospel comes to bear on a democracy like ours, not on particular issues that are the issues of evangelicals over against Catholics or others. That's really good. Now, what I said to you, what I said to you earlier that I think you wanted me to also touch on at this point is that, you know, in seeing ecumenism or a pursuit of unity or oneness between Catholics and evangelicals over the last 40 years, it has grown and grown and grown. And, 
I'm asked, is that what you're talking about? Mm. And there's a sense in which I want to say yes, but another profound sense in which I'll say no. Mm. For this reason, um, the, what's drawn Catholics and evangelicals together since the late 1970s through the 80s, 90s, and into the new millennium, the new century, is more of an interest in a few political issues that they agree on. Mm. Pro-life. Now, I said to you earlier, I'm pro-life, but... I, the term has been so co-opted politically for a pro-life means this view and this view only. That's right. And this is, this is the issue. And we've, we've, we've uh, marginalized those who don't agree with us on every political aspect of how to be pro-life that, that we've divided Christian from Christian over pro-life. Mm. And so we, we become uh, uh, stridently committed to this issue of life in a way that we can't hear anything else that's important to the common good of society and for the ethical and moral persuasiveness of the church in that society where it seeks the common good of all, not that's just right. for Christians. That's right. That's right. So, so, so what's happened, unfortunately, Ian, in my, my perspective of traveling all over the country and talking to bishops and theologians and priests and lay people in the Catholic church is two things. One is I constantly get the response from especially lay Catholics how do you know so much about the Catholic Church? You're not even a Catholic. I say, well, I spent 25 years with Catholics. <laughs> I spent 25 years with your theology. And frankly, I love the Catholic Church more than most Catholics. I mean, most Catholics don't go to church anymore, so I must love it more than them <laughs> because I go to Catholic services and I love Catholic priests, and they're some of my best friends. Same, by the way. So, 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 so you know, the, but, but what I've seen is that the energy right now of many Catholics is for conservative political issues. Mm-hmm. And so that brings them to the conservative politically involved Protestants mm-hmm. who are mostly evangelicals. And, and that's the moment in which we're living. I think, again, the younger generation is going to say, uh, that's, not, that's not nearly enough. That's right. You know, you may be right about some of these issues, but those issues are not unity. Those issues mm-hmm. are just issues that we can agree on, we can check the box on. But that doesn't create unity that will really last and will transcend issues and bring us back to this pursuit of the political good of all, mm. not just our party or our tribe or Christians, for that matter. I'll, I'll say one more thing that maybe flows out of this. It's controversial. I believe that Christians today ought to be the leading defenders of the political freedoms of Muslims to be Muslims of all other people in our society. And I'll give you, for instance, Please do. in secular France. Muslim women are legally not aware, uh, allowed to wear the hijab, the head covering. In America, they are. Mm. What's the difference? America is a country that not only honors freedom of religion, it also honors freedom from religion, both. Mm. And it argues that people can practice their religion openly and publicly so long as it doesn't violate a law that that destroys the common good. Yes. Therefore, you cannot do child sacrifice in the name of your religion. That's Our right. country will prosecute you. That's right. But you can wear a hijab. That's you right. can wear prayer beads. Come you on. can kneel on the on the on the sidewalk and pray and protest. You can do all those things because America is a nation not just of laws for protecting religions, but a place where you can express religion or no religion with complete freedom. I would give my life, this will sound strange, for the freedom of Muslims to practice their faith in this country. In fact, I would give my life for an atheist to be an atheist. Okay, that that is the way to end the show right there. We've given you a bunch of titles, but what you heard just there, I think, is preacher John Armstrong bringing the heat, hopefully not for the last time. Brother, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It has been such a gift. You can learn more at theinitiative.org. His book, Costly Love, I highly encourage you to get it costlylove.com. It has been such a joy to have you here today on The Common Good on AM 1160. Lots of channels. Nothing to watch. 
especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel. Straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525.